0: Well, we continue our series today in the letter of 1 John, and John writes with a very specific purpose, and I love that about John's writing, both in the gospel and in this letter, and the purpose really comes near the end of the letter. John's purpose is this. He's writing to people who already believe in Jesus Christ so that they might know that they have eternal life. Did you catch that? He's writing even to you and me who believe in Jesus Christ. We believe the truth about Jesus. But he's writing so that we can have full assurance of faith. That we can have confident faith in Jesus Christ. So that we can know that we know God. And so it's this assurance that John wants the church to have. And I think he's writing to the church probably in Ephesus. That was the church that John was most connected to. And John is now very old by this time. And so he's seeing another generation of Jesus followers coming up. Those that really didn't know the original story or weren't around to witness it. And now John wants them to have the full assurance that even the very first disciples had that walked with Jesus. And so this is a great letter for us to dig into and look at, and we're going to continue that today. Well, one of the reasons that John is writing is because there is a threat to the church. And this threat is not an external threat. It's actually an internal threat. It's not a threat from people who are seeking to destroy the Christian faith. As William Barclay says, it is from those who are seeking to improve the Christian faith to bring it uh, to a more current status in line with the current philosophical trends of the day. And that main philosophy is known as Gnosticism. And that's really a catch-all phrase for a number of different values and beliefs. But essentially, the Gnostics believed they had special knowledge. And this special knowledge allowed them to escape the material realm, to escape the, the confines of the evil of the soma, of the body, and go into the spiritual realm, the, the realm of the spirit. And so these Gnostics were really in danger of destroying the fellowship, the koinonia, the shared experience of the church. That was really the big danger that's going on here. And the way they were doing that is by creating a two-tiered Christian community. So there were those that were known as the pneumatica, literally the spirit people, those that saw themselves as very, very spiritual, and then there was all the others. And some of the Gnostics even believed that some people would never attain the special knowledge. Because to get the special knowledge, you had to have access to that kind of knowledge, which means that you had to have a certain level of privilege even in society. So the riffraff in the church, the ordinary people, would never actually attain that special knowledge. So there were two tiers, two classes of Christian or followers of Jesus. Those who had attained the special knowledge, the spiritually elite, and those who were left in the soma, the body, who were tied to the material things of the earth and would never attain to that. So you can see how damaging that would be within the church. Because nothing divides the church quite like spiritual elitism. When you have a group of people who are too heavenly-minded for any earthly use is the phrase I heard when I was growing up, and they separate the church into classes of Christians, and we must never do that. That's what John wants to warn the church about. So he wants them to have full assurance, and this assurance is because believing the truth about Jesus is enough. That's enough. That's all that's required. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not special extra knowledge, not special extra acts. Believe the truth about Jesus, and that is enough. That's a big part of John's message to the church. But he also wants to warn them to be able able to identify these false teachers. He wants the false teachers to kind of prove it by their lifestyle. And so he warns them about those who claim to walk in the light But actually, their actions are in darkness. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we want to look at those who claim to have advanced in their knowledge even beyond sin. But actually, John says, they are deceiving themselves. And so, basically, John is saying, we need to prove our faith, in a sense, by our actions. If our actions don't line up with our beliefs and with what we say, then there's maybe a danger of a disconnect. And John says, watch for that, watch for that in others, and steer away from those who claim one thing, but actually their actions reveal another thing. So today, we need to talk about sin. And I know I hear some people saying, oh, these preachers, they're always on and on about sin. Well, we are, because it's really serious, and it's incredibly destructive, and it's really, really is that bad. I think so often in society, we try and put band-aid solutions on things. We're always trying to, like they say, uh, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're always trying to clean things up from an exterior uh, point of view. But really, so much of what was wrong with us and what is wrong with us is eternal and and internal, and the Bible calls that sin. So we have have to talk about it. But even if you're not a believer in Jesus... I think there are some things that we can agree on when it comes to this talk about sin. I think we can agree that there are some things in society that are simply wrong. Even if you don't use the word sin, we would say that they are simply wrong. Actions, certain actions like murder or like stealing or like adultery, those kind of things, we can say, hey, that's wrong. That's wrong. We would agree on that even if we don't agree about Jesus. Or we'd say that certain attitudes are wrong. Attitudes like greed or the kind of arrogant pride that some people have or hatred and prejudice toward others. Those attitudes are wrong. And we say they're wrong because these actions and attitudes harm community. They harm human community and the environment in which we live. And so I think we agree at least on that, that our relationships, our society, our environment are harmed by wrong actions and wrong thinking. And that's something we agree on. Charles Spurgeon, an old Baptist preacher, uh, he said this, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, You are deceived. So I think at the very least, we detect something, that there's something wrong, something amiss within our society, within our human culture. But the problem of sin actually goes deeper than that once we get into the biblical understanding of sin. And to do that, we have to take a brief journey right back to the creation story in order to get why sin, why this thing that's so wrong is so upsetting and so damaging to all of society and to ourselves. In the garden, we discover this, that the human community really had three jobs. Uh, This is God coming down to Adam and Eve and saying, you only had three jobs to do and you kind of blew it all. What are those three jobs? First one is this, community building. That's why God gave Adam and Eve. It's not good for the man to be alone. We are meant to be in community and community building is one of our primary jobs. But secondly, there's also creation care. That's why God placed them in the garden and said, till it, do something with it, name the animals, make something of this, make it even more beautiful than it is. Care for creation, that's another job. But then the third job, and maybe the most eternal of all, is communion with God. This is why it says God came down to walk in the garden. And he was, we are made to be in communion, in communication with God who created us. And yet, through our action and our selfish ambition, we see that we've made all of those jobs harder because of our sin. That's what we see happening within the story of creation. But I wanna take sin even further than that, I wanna dig a little bit deeper. We see how it can harm everything that we do. It can harm our relationships. It can harm our society. It harms the environment around us. But it's even more than that. Because sin in the Bible isn't just something we do that harms other people. It's not just something that is against another person or against a moral code. What we discover in the Bible, and this comes very clear in Psalm 51 with King David, he says this, Against you and you only, Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? And so a biblical understanding of sin is that sin is actually ultimately against God. It's against God's way. It's against God's ideal. It's against God's design for us. That's where sin lands, is that it is against God, not just against one another. And then one more step, even deeper, just to feel the weight of sin this morning just a little bit more. It's not just our actions and our attitudes. It's not just even our words and our thoughts. And this is where we come right back to 1 John. The word that John used for sin here is hamartia. And hamartia simply means missing the mark. Missing the mark. It's not just used in the Bible. It's used in other Greek writings and Greek plays and dramas. And within that context of Greek tragedy... Hamartia is the fatal flaw of the character. So our hero in the Greek story gets so many things right. He's tall, he's strong, he's good-looking, but he's got an Achilles heel. (laughs) He's got a fatal flaw that drags him down, and that's Hamartia. It's the fact that as good as we might think that we are, and as much good as we do, and we recognize that all over the world, that many, many people are doing good. Even with that, we still miss the mark. We still fall short. All have sinned and hamartia, fall short of the glory of God. And that's the kind of sin that John is talking about. And so there's three things that I want to highlight now that John says about sin that we need to pay attention to if we're going to avoid the Gnostic destructive tendencies to divide our community between those who are super spiritual and those who are just ordinary Christians. Here's three things that John says about sin. First of all, we all sin. I, I know that's like, thanks for stating the obvious, but this is what John says. We all sin, even the Gnostics. And if they say they're without sin, they're just deceiving themselves. We all sin. I think this is an important message for us to get, and I'll tell you why in a second. But what we often do is we love to blame others for the stuff that goes wrong in our lives. We love to point to someone else's sin or someone else's actions that have hurt or harmed us. And that's often the case. And yet we're so reluctant sometimes to look within at what we have done or haven't done. This hamartia that's within us, this falling short of the mark. And sometimes we fail to acknowledge our own sin. And that's Unfortunate, because we can never fully get to experience God's salvation unless we acknowledge our own sin. Or sometimes we can justify our bad behavior. Well, the devil made me do it. Or I had to do this because of X, Y, Z. Do you fill in the gaps? Uh, So we have to be careful we don't uh, act like the Gnostics and deny that we're affected by sin. We're only deceiving ourselves, says John, and says the Bible in this. But here's what I want to make really, really clear, because sin is not actually a message that's meant to bring guilt or shame to us. I know that comes as a surprise, but really I feel that sin is a message that is meant to bring us to freedom and unity. Bear with me just for a second here. When I say that we all sin, and when the Bible says we all sin, that is to make sure that we don't divide between an us and them mentality. If you look at the Gospels, there was a group of people during the time of Jesus that some members of society classified as the sinners. Do you remember this in the Gospels? So it could be because of their occupation or because of their alignment, political affiliation, or it could even be because they have a disease or a sickness and they were classified as the sinners, and the sinners were not to be associated with or touched. What does Jesus do with the sinners? He becomes a friend of sinners. He actually eats with them. And to the horror of the, uh, the people in charge of the religious institution, Jesus is among the sinners. Now fast forward beyond the cross. And as we come into the writings, especially of Paul, we come to understand this truth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't some special group that are the sinners. In fact, we are the sinners. We are that group. We are all in this together. And it's so important that we identify as the sinners. Why? Because Jesus is the friend of sinners. If we are going to understand the friendship of Jesus, if we're going to understand the cross, then we need to find ourselves among the sinners. And there's an incredible freedom in that. There's an incredible freedom in acknowledging our brokenness, our faults, our sins before God because then we can receive the friendship. We can receive Jesus sitting at our table and welcoming us even though we have sinners. So this is an important thing that John makes, a point that he makes to the church that there's not the super elite and then the riffraff in the church. We are all sinners. In fact, I'd say there's two things that unites all of humanity. Number one, we are all made in God's image. If we can get that through our head, uh, we will uh, come, get past a lot of prejudice. We are all made in God's image. And the second truth is very important as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in this together. Once we get that, that sense of unity and that sense of freedom, in knowing that we are sinners together, then we can move on to the next step. So that's the first big thing about sin. We all sin. Second big thing that John wants to say to the church, God forgives our sin. Again, it sounds obvious, but bear with me because this is so, so important in John's message. God forgives our sin because of the work of Jesus. And John in this passage highlights two amazing, very deeply theological things That Jesus has done for us that allows God to forgive our sins and yet remain just and holy. Because a judge can't just let people go off free. And so what has God done and what has Jesus done on our behalf so that we can be forgiven and God can remain just? Well, this is what we see in the passage. First of all, Jesus became our advocate. This is a Greek word, parakletos. It's a great word. It's used of the Holy Spirit. It's used here of Jesus. It literally means the one who comes alongside to help. This is what Jesus does. We, on our own strength, cannot overcome our sin. They cannot overcome our falling short. But we have someone in our corner. God is for us and not against us. And because Jesus is our advocate He always wins. That's his theme song. All I do is win, win, win no matter what. That's Jesus. He always wins. And since he's our advocate, he always wins on our behalf. So if you're feeling a little discouraged, if you're feeling a little bit hesitant to go into the presence of God in prayer or asking or just meditating or or being with the Christian community in some kind of way, remember... Jesus is our advocate. That's what John wants people to know. The second big thing that's mentioned in this passage is that Jesus is also the propitiation for our sins. Sometimes it's translated the atoning sacrifice. And this, it's almost impossible to really understand this unless we dig into the Old Testament sacrificial system just a little bit. Here's how I want to set it up. In the Old Testament and in Old Testament times, Uh, two parties would form a covenant agreement, an agreement of terms. And sometimes, and we're not just talking about God and his people here, but, but two parties in general, in order to sign the deal, they wouldn't just write down on a paper, but they would take an animal. And this gets a little graphic and gruesome, so if you need to plug your ears for about a minute and a half, go ahead and do that. But they would take an animal, and they'd split the animal from nose to tail. They'd put the two halves on the animal, on a bit of a hillside, and then they would literally walk through the blood. What are they doing when they do that? Well, basically they're saying, these two parties to this agreement, that if either one of us breaks our covenant agreement, that you can do to me what we just did to that animal. That's kind of the idea. And so when God makes a covenant with his people, that's the idea there too, that they are supposed, supposed to both of the parties Uphold the terms of the agreement. But what's the problem? Hamartia, we always fall short. And so God's people consistently and constantly fall short of the terms of the agreement. And they fall under the the curse of the law. And now their lives are forfeit. Essentially, because they've agreed. Do to me what we've just done to this animal if I break the covenant. So when we see all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament... It's not that they take away sin. We're told that in Hebrews. All those sacrifices could never fully take away sin. But they serve as a reminder of the penalties of the law under the old covenant. Under that covenant agreement, we had said that due to us what we've just done to that animal, if we break the rules, if we break this covenant agreement. And so the animals were a reminder of what was owed under the terms of the covenant. Now fast forward to the New Testament because this will help us understand what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, goes to the cross and this is God saying to us, I have determined to take care of the obligation of both sides of the covenant agreement. I have determined that I will take on the penalty that you were supposed to take because you are the covenant breakers. But you know what? I'm sending my son so that he might bear that penalty in your stead. And you can go free. You can go free. That's how we go free. That's how we're forgiven. Not because God just decided to to write it off. No, because of what Jesus did in keeping the terms of the covenant on our behalf. He became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin so that we can be free. So, there's two great truths. We all sin, and God has forgiven our sin in Jesus Christ. Here's the third great truth that John wants them to get in the church. Third thing, we should stop sinning. Now, if you bear with me and follow the logic of the first two points, then this might be a surprise. Because, I mean, if everybody's doing it, and God is willing and has already forgiven it, then what's the problem? Why can't we just keep on sinning? That was uh, Paul's argument as well in the Romans. Uh, After telling the Romans all about God's grace and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, uh, Paul goes on to say, so should we sin even more so that grace might abound? And he says, no, God forbid. That's not the way it works. That's not the appropriate response to God's grace in Jesus Christ. The appropriate response to forgiveness is to walk in the light, to live lives that are truthful and holy. The appropriate response to God's grace is to stop sinning, to stop being bound by this thing that, that harms us and destroys us, tears apart our relationships, our environment, our community, the greed and, and, and the unhelpful prejudice and everything that tends to destroy our ability to function as God made us. John says, you've got to stop doing that. This is not an excuse. The fact that God forgives us is not an excuse to go on sinning. We need to acknowledge our sin. We need to receive God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then we need to go on to stop sinning. Not because of guilt and shame, but so that we can have fellowship with one another and full unbroken fellowship with God the Father the Lord Jesus Christ, through his spirit. And so I think that's why unconfessed sin robs us of our confident faith. If we're harboring unconfessed sin, if we don't acknowledge our sin, then we lose our confidence. So how do we wrap all this up today? Well, here's my encouragement. My encouragement to you as a believer in Jesus Christ is this, keep short accounts with God and with one another. My encouragement if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ is, man, run to the cross. Receive the forgiveness that God offers to us because there is a freedom and a joy in knowing that we're forgiven. But to the believer in Christ, keep short accounts with God. Now I know this phrase is somewhat misunderstood and sometimes even controversial. We're not asking for salvation over and over again. That's not what we're saying here. God never blocks us out. He doesn't hold our sin against us. That's very clear in the Gospels. But it's our experience of God's favor and God's presence that suffers when we harbor unconfessed sin, when we allow these things to build up in our lives. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Beekner, he says this, To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however... They are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. That's the idea. So if you're feeling today that there's a bit of a gulf between you and God, maybe it's because we've allowed some of these things to build up in our lives. David says in Psalm 32 that when he didn't confess his sins right away, his bones ached and he was miserable all day long. And when people are miserable, they have a hard time getting along with other people. It's hard to have good fellowship with one another when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that we shouldn't come to worship if we have an unresolved relationship or unreconciled uh, difficulty with another person. In fact, he says, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And so our fellowship with one another will be hindered if we have unconfessed sin. And our fellowship with God, our worship with God will be hindered if we have unconfessed sin. That's what John is really getting at here. He wants their fellowship, their joy to be complete. And that involves acknowledging our sin, confessing it, and then receiving God's free forgiveness and his grace. Well, as we uh, look at this today, we, we want to understand, first of all, that we are saved from the penalty of sin because of the faithfulness of Jesus. However, we can accumulate a kind of dirt on our feet as we walk through the world. And, and like Jesus says to Peter, you don't need to bathe all over again. You just need to have your feet washed. You just need to have your feet washed. This is the grace of confession of being able to confess our sins before God and even to one another. Psalm 51, this is the prayer of David. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I wonder if some of us today are praying that prayer. God, restore to me the joy, the confidence of your salvation and and open that relationship up again to freedom, and to grace. So a couple of questions as we wrap up today. First of all, do we have unreconciled relationships that are keeping us from entering fully into worship? Just reflect on that maybe today. What do we need to do about that? And do we have unconfessed sin that robs us of our confidence with God? What do we need to do about that? given all that we've just heard about the grace of God and the fact that we don't need to hold on to those things because of the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. Here's the promise in 1 John. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I trust that will be your experience today. Amen.